So as we begin our reading in John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, it says, After this Jesus went about in Galilee, He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill Him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so His brother said to Him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even His brothers believed in Him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He's a good man. Others said, No, he is leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether my teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his time had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? You know, I remember some time ago, I don't even remember what the total situation was, but one of Leah's boys did something that needed to be corrected. As I began to correct him, Leah came out and she gave me a little bit more information that kind of completed the picture of what was going on. And you see what had happened was I saw a small part of the picture and thought something kind of unjust was happening. And when I got the whole picture of what was going on, well, it turned out that he didn't really need to be corrected. And so I remember thinking at that point, I need to make sure that I've got the full picture, the full story, before I start giving direction on which way things need to go from here. And it just kind of cemented that into my mind and hopefully into my grandfatherly experience going forward. The reason I bring that up is because that's kind of what's happening here. In John chapter 7, there is reaction after reaction after reaction. People responding to Jesus Christ. Who is He? That's the big question. Some are saying He's the guy. Others are saying, no, He's not the guy. And so that's really, when you look at the theme of John chapter 7, what is it about? It's about answering that question. Who is the Christ? 
Right in the midst of that chapter, Jesus gives them a warning. And the warning that He gives them is, do not judge by appearances, but judge with the right judgment. You know, notice He's not telling them not to judge. These people have to make a judgment. They have to make a decision. They, they have to decide, who is this man? Is He the Christ or is He not? And the Gospel of John has been all about showing sign after sign after sign that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So that people can believe in Him, again mentioned over 80 times in the Gospel of John, and receive eternal life. Because that life is in the Son. It's in Christ. Jesus is recognizing that these people all need to make a judgment on who Christ is if they're going to have eternal life. But that gets awful tricky sometimes. Because a lot of times you're bombarded with so many opinions and pieces of information that uh, sometimes uh, you don't end up making that decision on the best of grounds. And that's exactly what Jesus is warning these people about. He says, look, you need to judge rightly. And that's what we're looking at here this morning is judging with a right judgment. In verses 12 through 13, it says, And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And so you see kind of the, the tone set for the chapter of what's going on. And you know, you really have to come down to a proper conclusion here. As we pointed out in the past, you cannot just say that Jesus was a good man or Jesus was a good teacher and Jesus was a moral teacher. He did not leave that open to us. And C.S. Lewis points out why. He says either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. If he's not God and he claimed to be God, he's one of two things. If he's not God and he knows it, but he claims it, then he's a liar. He's dishonest. He's a charlatan. And that does not make a good man or a good teacher. Or, if he's not God but he thinks he's God, then he's crazy. And that also does not make a good teacher. And so really, since he claimed to be God in all the areas of authority that he claimed to have in his ministry, he either has to be God, or he has to be a liar, or he has to be a lunatic. That's the choice that we have. Some people are saying, well, he's a good man. Yeah, you can't really just leave it at that. That's not a possibility. That's why the other people were saying, no, you can't say that because... They weren't thinking he's God. They said, so he's deceiving the people. He's a, he's a deceiver. And so Jesus is telling them at this point, look, you better exercise right judgment. There's a lot of confusion in Jerusalem at this time. Some of them saying, yep, he's the guy. Some of them saying, nope, he's not the guy, but he's a good guy. Others saying, nope, he's a demon. Well, Jesus says in the midst of that, do not judge by appearances, but judge with a right judgment. And as we look through these arguments that they give and the reasons for the way they think that the way they do, then it helps us to see how we can make sure that we're judging with the proper judgment. And the first step is to recognize bias. In chapter 7, verse 16 through 18, it says, So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. He says, He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. When will he know that? Right before it. If anyone's will is to do God's will. 
In other words, if your motive, if your goal is God's will, then that helps you to be unbiased. That you're just going to, wherever the truth leads you, that's where you're going to land. What is the other outcome? He says, if your goal is your own glory, there's a way that works better for you that you're going to want to lean toward. And so you're going you're gonna to lean into your biases rather than trying to see through them clearly and find the truth. If your goal is the will of God and only the will of God, then you're going to know what the truth is because God's it'll be revealed to you and your own biases will be kind of peeled out of the way and you'll be able to see it clearly. But if your goal is how it benefits you, what glory does it bring me? What honor? What prestige? You see, that's the problem the Pharisees had and the religious leaders because the religious leaders were all about their own glory. They wanted to look good to the other religious leaders and to the people looking up at them. And so they were stuck in their biases and it corrupted their view. Jesus says, look, you've got to be focused on the glory of God. You know, I remember one time uh, my friend Mark Young uh, asked me to come down to his church for a weekend. They were going to have a panel discussion. They were dealing with some of the things at their church and he wanted uh, his deacons and, and himself uh, they asked myself and another pastor who had pastored both Mark and I had sat under Pastor Kittle down from Grace in Oatana. We all met at Mark's church and he wanted to have a discussion concerning marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And what does the Bible have to say about these three things? So as we began discussing the issue of marriage and divorce and remarriage, we were going through a lot of passages in Scripture that dealt with marriage and divorce and remarriage, obviously. When we did that, there was there was one of uh, the deacons in Mark's church, and his position was, I don't want to recognize divorce at all. Divorce is never an option. Which I would grant to him that in the Bible, divorce is a last option, and it's a very negative one. The Bible says God hates divorce. The Bible says when two people are married together, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. At the same time, I recognize that uh, there is an exception. It's not a mandatory exception. I don't think it's always even the best exception. But Jesus did say, except for the case of sexual immorality. So if one, a husband or a wife, is unfaithful, then there is an exception where there's a legitimate time to divorce. As I said, if, if things can be mended and fixed and forgiven and put on the right track, I don't think it's always the, necessarily the best option. But that would be very difficult. And so I can see how it is an option. But at any rate, Jesus... Acknowledged an exception. Now, when we're discussing it then, I said, well, in this passage, Jesus acknowledged that there is an exception where somebody can legitimately pursue a divorce and be within the will of God. And he said, well, I think we should take a strong stance. And to me, the strongest stance is just no divorce, period. Do not recognize it. I said, you see, I also think we ought to have a strong stance. I, I think here's the difference in our approach. I said to me, the only thing that really matters is the will of God. And so the strongest position that you can hold is what does the Bible teach concerning this thing? When I look at your position, even though you think it's the stronger position, I think your position is weaker. Because where Jesus provided an an exception, you do not allow for an exception. And so yours is less biblical, which makes it less strong. You see, the only goal, the only goal here is to be in the will of God. If you say, well, I want to err on the side of this, or I want to err on the side of this, to err on either side is still an error. But the goal, to be able to see clearly, you've got to have the one goal. What does Jesus say is the goal? The will of God. If you strive to know the will of God, if that's your only focus, is to know the will of God, then your biases won't crowd in and choke those things out. 
Because in any position, in any issue that you think about, there's always something in it for you. There's always a, well, if I go this way, I like this better. Maybe it's just, maybe it's just makes you feel more comfortable. But the fact of the matter is, in any issue or time, the best thing that we can be focused on is just, God, what is the will of God? What does His Word have to say about this? And I'm going to follow it wherever it goes. Look, if you please God, you'll be pleasing all the right people. That has to be the goal. Let's please God. Let's, let's determine to know His will. And Jesus says, when you do that, when the will of God is your only focus, when the glory of God and not your own glory is the only thing bearing on this, then you know what? You can cut through those biases. And you can see things more clearly. In verse 19, He says, Has not Moses given you the law? Let none of, yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? On the face, you might say, well, what in the world does that have to do with biases? You know what it does? You know what the very first bias that I had that had to be overcome for me to put my faith in Christ was? It was my own goodness. Because I thought that God was fine with me because I was a decent person. Obviously, I measure things with a different scale than God did because in nowhere in Scripture do I find a spot where I think He was calling me a decent person. I was figuring that I was happy with me, figured He was too. The day that I realized that I was lost, the biggest struggle I had was my bias toward my own goodness. When at first that thought came to me that I was outside of Christ, that I was headed for hell, I thought, no way. No way. I'm a good person. We had started going to church and I started getting involved in church and different things. I started looking to those things and saying, you know, I'm, I'm a good guy. And you know what? I had to recognize that I had to put away my bias even toward myself. Because as I'm looking at myself as a good guy, I'm, it's my own glory that I'm focused on, right? And I had to recognize that I have fallen short to the glory of God. And when my focus got upon the glory of God and I saw that I fall well short of that, then finally I could submit myself to Christ and put my faith in Him. We're flooded with biases. It does better for us if things go this way than this way. So we kind of want to look at them that way. We want to see them a certain way. And Jesus says, look, until you get to the point where you better focus on only the will of God so you can make a right judgment, that's where we are. You know, in John chapter 7, Jesus tells... His brothers, he says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You see, that's that same bias that I was talking about. Why does the world come to a conclusion about Christ that He's not the Christ? It's not because there's no evidence. It's not because there's no signs. Right? We just watched Jesus perform signs. Right? It's not because there's not enough evidence. It's not because of that. It's because they don't want Him to be the bread of life. It's because they don't want Him to be the Savior of the world. Why? Why would anybody not want Him to be the Savior of the world? You want to know why? Because it means you need a Savior. And nobody wants to acknowledge that. We like to go on thinking that we're the good guy in all the situations. And even when we do wrong, well, we really had the best of intentions and the best of motives, and which is a bunch of baloney. But that's how we want to see it. And Jesus says to His brothers, He said, look, the world doesn't hate you. You want to know why? Because you fit in. Because you're part of the world. They weren't believers. He says, but it hates me. And why does it hate him? Why does it have this bias against him? Because he points out that the deeds are evil. In fact, earlier in John, what does it say? That the light comes into the world, but the men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. They don't want the light shined on their wickedness. You know, you look at what's happening in our society and culture today, and that is what it's all about. Everybody's trying to push Christianity into a closet because we've let what was in the closet out of the closet. As Christianity continues to shine the light, and the Word of God shines a light on what is evil and wicked, the darkness doesn't want the light. The darkness wants the light shut back off. You know, it's kind of like when you're in a totally dark room and somebody comes in and flips the light on and it hurts your eyes and you're going like, oh, turn that back off. 
And that's what the world is doing. The world has a bent. They have a bias against Christ. Why? Because His light shows their darkness. And so they want to extinguish the light so they can be satisfied in their own darkness. In verse 24, that's why He brings us back to that warning. Do not judge by appearances, but judge right judgment. Well, the first way that we do that is by overcoming our biases. When we're only focused on the will of God, our biases tend to fall off to the side and not influence our thinking so much. Well, then secondly, I also see that we're to judge according to principle and not person. You know, this was handy to me. I remember when I went to my first ministry out of college, a youth ministry, I was going to a church where I had family members there and I was concerned about that. Maybe that's not a good idea to go be in a leadership position in a church where you have family members. And I remember talking to the president of the college and saying, is this a problem? Should I be avoiding that kind of a situation? And he said, no. He says, I've, I've served in churches where I had family members there. He says, but I will tell you this. If you operate according to principle, you'll be just fine. But if you operate according to person, that's a real headache that you should avoid. The principle operates the same way, whether it's somebody who's my family member or not my family member. You've got to be able to focus on the principles. In John chapter 7 and verse 31, it says, Yet many of the people believed in Him. They said, When the Christ appears, will He do more signs than this? Now, this is a good example. These are people that are actually doing the right thing. They're looking at the principles. What are they looking at? The evidence. The signs. And so they're looking at the signs, the miracles that Jesus is performing, and they're saying, look, if this guy isn't the Christ, one, why can He do those signs? And two is, when the real Christ does come, we expect Him to do more than this? I mean, this guy's cleansed lepers, fed people with... Little to no amounts of food. Thousands of people. He's changed water to wine. He's walked on the water. He's cast out demons. He's raised the dead. What's left for the real Christ to do if this guy isn't it? And so these people are on the kind of the right track right here. Well, in John chapter 7, verse 15, says the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now what's happening here is they're starting to lean toward going by person instead of principle. What they're saying is, how does this guy know these things since he didn't go to our schools? They're like, you didn't get trained in our schools, so what uh, value is your opinion? Who, who are you? In John chapter 7, verse 48 and 49, it says, Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. They're not giving you an argument for why not to believe in Jesus other than they're saying, look, we haven't believed in him, and so you shouldn't believe in him. The people that are believing him, they're an uneducated lot. Well, that doesn't prove anything. When you look at logic, there is a proper appeal to authority. Right? I remember thinking this about commercials. When you see a commercial for a toothpaste and they tell you four out of five dentists recommend this toothpaste. Well, I'm not saying that there aren't still some things to look into there, but that is a proper appeal to authority. If I want to know what the best toothpaste is for one thing or another, who am I going to ask? My dentist. The welfare of my teeth is their goal and they're knowledgeable about that kind of a thing. So that makes sense. So that commercial is a proper appeal to authority. And then I think of uh, Tom Selleck. Tom Selleck does a commercial on reverse mortgages. What does Tom Selleck know about reverse mortgages? Now, I think the reason he's on the commercial is because he's really good at acting folksy and kind of coming across honest. And I'm not saying he's dishonest. When is Tom Selleck ever going to need to use a reverse mortgage in his financial future? I think he's probably pretty set. Improper appeal to authority. You know, it seems to me that if you're an authority of the law, which these people should have been, it should have been easy for them, if Jesus wasn't the guy, sit down, open your Old Testament, and point out to people why we don't believe in Him. But they don't do that. They just say, hey, we don't believe in Him. You shouldn't either. You know, in verses 25-26, says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? 
And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? The people are also watching the authorities. They're watching the religious leaders. And they're saying, well, Jesus came into town and He went right to the temple and started teaching in the temple. And the authorities are like standing around the edge watching. They're not doing anything. They're not stepping up and telling Him where He's wrong. Do they know that He's really the Christ? And so this extra confusion is getting in. But notice, what are they doing? They're still basing it on the authorities. They're still using that appeal to authority. They're not looking at what the facts are. They're looking at, does the authorities believe in Him or not? Not the best place to go. Especially when you consider that if we skip forward to John chapter 11, the authorities have a bias. And in verse 48, it says, if we let Him go on like this, everyone will believe in Him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You see, they're looking at this very politically. You see, the religious leaders had an enormous bias. They were trying to placate Rome so that they could keep their place of authority, their high-level position within their society. And then in verses 50-52, to Nicodemus steps up. This is Nicodemus who had gone to him before and who was one of them. And he said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Now there's an idea. If you want to judge rightly, that's where you need to start. Nicodemus says, you know what, maybe we should have him in and ask him a bunch of questions. Remember Nicodemus in John chapter 3 had went and found Jesus at night so that he could ask Jesus a bunch of questions. Let's bring him in here and listen to what he has to say and so we can make up a good decision. And what is their response? They replied, are you from Galilee too? <laughs> in other words, are you also uneducated? Are you also kind of one of the dummies? That's what they're saying to him. But then they do bring in a little bit of information. It says, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, there's a little bit of a problem here because Jonah was from Galilee and he's a prophet. And some think that uh, Nahum and possibly Hosea were both also from Galilee as well. When they do finally bring a fact that you could kind of do something with, they're wrong. Are you also from Galilee? What are they doing? They call it an ad hominem attack. An ad hominem attack is a tool in logic that when you don't have the argument that will persuade, when you can't attack the argument because you don't have true information, then you attack the person. And that's what they do with Nicodemus here. Nicodemus, they just try to silence him because he brings up this question, shouldn't we listen to him? And they say, are you from Galilee too? I remember when I was in eighth grade, something was said and I didn't know what it meant. I walked over to my friend and I said, what was said? And he repeated to me what was said and everybody had laughed about it and I didn't know what it was. And so I said, well, what does that mean? And he looked at me and he says, if you don't know that, you shouldn't be in 8th grade. So apparently he didn't know what it meant either. This is what I take from it. <laughs> but He didn't tell me. He didn't offer me valuable information. It kind of attacked me with it. Well, that's what a lot of times you'll see when somebody has a weak argument, when they, their argument doesn't win the case by presenting the argument, then you attack the person. And that's what's happening with Nicodemus here. He brings a very good idea and they attack him for it. In fact, in, a, in chapter 8 and verse 48, they'll do the same kind of thing with Jesus. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? <laughs> Remember we talked about that before. Samaritan was used as a derogatory comment. What are they doing here? They're just calling names. They can't withstand his, his logic, his reason, and so they, they're just calling him names. And in fact, in this chapter, they do the same thing. In John chapter 7, the crowd answered and Jesus told them, You're not following the law of Moses. You're trying to kill me. Why are you trying to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon who is, who is seeking to kill you. Well, actually it's pretty well known that they were seeking to kill him. In verse 1, it said that after this, Jesus 
went about in Galilee, he wouldn't be in Judea or, or Judah anymore because they're seeking to kill him and he knows it. The crowd knows it in, in verse 25. says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not the man whom they are seeking to kill? The whole countryside knew that they were trying to kill Christ. That was no secret. You have a demon. You're crazy. What does telling somebody they have a demon or telling them they're crazy prove? It doesn't prove anything. And you see, that's the point. When you look down through these issues and the arguments that people raise... They appeal to authority. They appeal to the person rather than the principles. They don't deal with the evidence. A few people were looking at the evidence. Is he going to do more miracles than this? More signs than this? Seems like he's the guy. Looks like he's winning an argument. Maybe he's the guy because they're not even stepping up to quiet him down. And so there's a few people looking at principles, but a lot of people just going by, well, what do do the religious leaders think? That's what we pay them for. Lastly is you need to seek answers and not just questions. As you look through this chapter, there are questions that are raised. But you know what the problem is? As far as I can tell, they never pursued any of them. They never followed through with an answer. Nicodemus wanted to. He said, let's get Jesus in here and ask him these things. As far as I can tell, none of them pursued any answers. And, and the problem is, you know, most of the things that they brought up, they were, they were questions that really have a simple answer. They just had to dig in a little bit. But you know what? A lot of times people feel like they're involved in a conversation if they raise the questions. You can even sound pretty smart by just raising the questions. But you know what? Raising the questions doesn't make you smart unless you follow them through to get the answers. And that's what they needed to do. In verses 40 and 43, it says, When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Now that is a great question. The only problem is there's a great answer, but they don't go looking for it as far as I can tell. Because actually, you all know this, every Christmas program shares this truth. He was born in Bethlehem. In fact, when you look at it, the whole childhood of Christ is a picture of the history of Israel. Or maybe I should say the history of Israel is a picture of the upgrowing of Christ. Why? Because Christ was born in Bethlehem, and then His life was threatened by Herod, and so they take Him down into Egypt. Remember, just like their ancestors went down into Egypt to be protected from a famine. And then later, God, through the hand of Moses, brings His people out of Egypt. And there's a passage that says, Out of Egypt have I called my son. And later, God tells Joseph, now that Herod's dead, that Herod in particular, there's a few Herods in the Bible, time to come up out of Egypt, time for his son to leave Egypt, just like it was the nation had left Egypt before. And then he's going to go into the wilderness to be tempted, just like Egypt or Israel went into the wilderness for the time of testing before God. And then as soon as they get out in the wilderness, and while they're in the wilderness, they're given the Ten Commandments. And if you look at the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus comes out of the wilderness, He gives the Sermon on the Mount. And so the life of Christ is a very picture of the history of Israel or vice versa. It's a very rich understanding of who Christ is if they would have pursued the answer. Not only that, but there's prophecy that's tied into it as well. Matthew actually records, quoting from Isaiah chapter 9, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. Prophets do come from Galilee and there's prophecy about the Messiah being there as well. And so you had a whole bunch of people a lot of confusion. Who is Christ? And there's a lot of answers. 
But a lot of people left in their confusion. Why? Well, because they didn't go by the principles, they went by the person. That just leads you into whatever confusion is in the crowd. Not only that, a lot of them had their own biases. They don't want to see themselves as evil before God and in need of a Savior. And lastly, they were willing to entertain the questions but not pursue the answers. I find pretty much that uh, not much has changed. You know, I've been in quite a few conversations with people that are willing to throw out questions that would make you doubt Christianity but have no interest in the answers. What you've got to do as Jesus said. You've got to judge a right judgment. You've got to get your focus right. You've got to focus on the will of God. Let that be your only main goal. That will weed through some of your own biases. Don't go by person because you've got to recognize that every other person in the world has their own biases that they're dealing with as well. You need to get beyond the person down to the principle of the thing. Lastly, don't be content to leave things as a question. A lot of people have a question that they think makes them sound smart in their unbelief. And all it makes them is foolish. Because you're not willing to go for the answer. We need those answers.